This is the award-winning show, The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate us on iTunes. You can leap over a chair from a standing position. It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The Big Electron. The Big Electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Of course you feel it. Now what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing. Get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome to The Big Electron uh, here on KCU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. I'm Jackie. And I'm Anahita. And we have a great show for you today. Uh, thanks for listening. We have great news. We have excellent news. Yes, so uh, to all of our listeners here on KCOU and also to our subscribers um, on, on our podcast, um, thank you for listening. Um, you've been... Uh, following us for for quite a bit sometime and uh we have some some great news to share with you so do you want to share it sure so um earlier this year we found out that we were one of the finalists for the intercollegiate broadcasting system awards in the category of public affairs best public affairs show yes and um this past weekend uh we found out that we are the winner woohoo for 2017 so that's super exciting yeah that is very exciting um so we we competed um along with uh i guess shows from from other um collegiate uh broadcasting um what stations (laughs) yeah so other college (laughs) other college radio stations and um and, and here at KCAU, uh, there were there were uh, three of us that were finalists. Uh, it was our show, The Big Electron, uh, a play-by-play um, of, 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 I believe it was a football game, and then um, another category. And um, the three of us were finalists. Um, and then The Big Electron won Yay. for Best Public Affairs show. So uh, it's pretty exciting. So we just uh, wanted to share those good news and, and thank everyone who has been on the show, um, either as a guest or uh, one of the co-hosts, because um, we started about four years ago. Um, <laughs> so it's been, it's been, it's been fun, um, and, and we just want to give, give a shout-out to, to our listeners, to our guests, and uh, the other co-host of that uh, that been on the show before, so yeah, yay. Okay, uh, so with that, uh, why don't we move on to the show for today? We have with us a great guest, um, a fellow graduate student, uh, future Dr. Ronnie Lanco. Luckholm, Luckholm. I knew yeah. I was. No, get we get that a lot because of the clothing line. Okay, Lancome, or is it might be perfume? Yeah. But, okay. <laughs> well, welcome. Thank you. Um, so we always start the show when we have a guest with the same question, which is, how did you get into science? But before we get into that, um, can you tell us what department you're from? Oh, yes, I'm and sorry. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more 
short bio of uh, who you are. So you're Ronnie, and you are a graduate student in the Department of... Biological Sciences. And you work for Professor... I work for Dr. D. Cornelison in the Bond Life Sciences Center. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, um, yeah, Ronnie, how did you get into science? Well, I have kind of a sort of straightforward, but also sort of unexpected path into science, because I think the very short answer to that question is I was born... <laughs> Um, (laughs) I I don't remember a time when I wasn't interested in science. Uh, Growing up, I was the kid who was asking for chemistry sets Mm -hmm. and telescopes. And I had one of those little machines that you put in the middle of the room and it puts all the constellations up on your ceiling. Oh, cool. Uh, when I was in third grade, we had our career fair where you have to, you know, talk about what career you wanted. And I talked about wanting to be a planetologist, which is somebody who studies the planets. Um, and so it was a very, from a young age, I was very interested in science, but my mm-hmm. cousins were as well. So I had a lot of really nerdy people to hang out with. Mm-hmm. And if we would play animals, like when we were kids, like dolphins in the pool or wolves in the backyard, we always had to pick somebody to be the alpha. <laughs> hilarious. (laughs) And and so it's been a very nerdy um, route to get where I am, but it was also not clear to me until I was in college that that route was actually clearly Mm -hmm. leading me to science because I actually started at Truman State University as a double major in biology and art. Oh, cool. Um, And so I had taken art classes all the way through elementary school, middle school, high school, and I had also taken science classes every single year. during those years as well. And I got to Truman and just realized that I didn't have time to take art classes and biology classes Mm -hmm. to get a degree in both. And I decided to go to science. I found that I was just drawn a little bit more to my lab, my labs than I was to the art classes. So was it a specific kind of art or just a general interest in art? Kind of how you had this varying interest in science also. I would say that I tended towards drawing. Okay. My favorite medium for art was using chalk pastels. Interesting. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so um, was it at Truman that you um, grew your passion for the field that you're in? It was. I remember I took a specific course my junior year at Truman. It was called Cancer Biology. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most interesting science courses I took because it took the information I learned from my cell biology courses, my genetics courses, my intro to bio courses, and it kind of, it meshed them into one system for the first time for me. Mm -hmm. And so it took all of the stuff I had been learning and I could finally see how it was supposed to work. And then when you put kinks in the system or break it down, how it can cause diseases like cancer. Hmm. And during that class, so I don't journal regularly, but as I've been growing up, I journal occasionally. Okay. And one of my very few journal entries that I have from college is one saying, like, I think this is the field that I want to go into. And I had been watching TV in my room. And I think it was a commercial for, um, like, breast cancer awareness had come on. And after the commercial was over, I stayed in my bed thinking, like, all night long, all of the places that something could have broken down to cause breast cancer and all of the places that you could go in and potentially try for a fix. And so mm-hmm. after that, it was like, wow, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Maybe <laughs> I should actually study that. 
And when I came to Mizzou for my PhD program, I actually... Do you, do you remember how it was, when it was, like if you were a junior or no, something? I was a junior, and I think it was the fall semester junior year. Okay. Mm. And had you been considering grad school by that point? I had been considering grad school, but at that point, my only focus was molecular biology. Okay. Because um, okay. I knew I didn't want to go to med school, and I wasn't particularly interested in teaching. Um, but I really loved my biology courses. And so since I liked doing the research, mm -hmm. uh, going to grad school was kind of a, you know, mm -hmm. the next route for me to go. Yeah. But I didn't know a specific interest until I had taken this course. Hmm. Cool. So then you decided to go to grad school and then mm -hmm. you started here in Mizzou. Yes. And I actually thought I was not going to be able to study cancer biology while I was here at Mizzou because there's not very much cancer research going on in the biological sciences department, but I picked okay. it because I really liked the faculty here and I felt really comfortable and that they would get me where I needed to go. Mm -hmm. And I knew I could do cancer research once I left, if I just learned how to be a good scientist. Sure. Um, and so I did two rotations that were just like totally not anything near what I'm doing now. <laughs> one of them was studying slime molds. Okay. And one of them was doing corn research where I was looking at mutations in the reproductive organs of corn. So nothing related to cancer at all. So when you say you did a rotation, how long were you in those two labs? I spent anywhere between eight and 12 weeks learning the science in those labs and learning about how the advisors liked to teach science. Mm -hmm. So a, a really good chunk of time, yeah. like, you know, three months. Yeah, And then you do two rotations, that's half a year. It is, and it takes a long time, but it's worth it to spend that time if you're going to be spending the next five to seven years with that person. Yeah. So those three months, while it's kind of a heavy investment up front, it's really worth it in the end. Okay. And then after that, did you mm -hmm. do a rotation in the lab you're in now? I did. And I was standing by the elevators in my building one day in my second rotation. And the, my advisor D, Dr. Cordellison, she came up to me at the elevators and she looks at me and she says to me, so I have some cancer slides. Are you going to come do research on them or am I going to have to give them to somebody else? <laughs> And at that point, what? I didn't know that she had this. I thought that she had just been studying stem cells yeah. that she had talked to me about. And so my jaw kind of dropped and it was like, no, like, please don't give them to somebody else. I really want to do this research. That's great. And so that's, it just kind of, you know, when I thought I had given it up to come to Mizzou, then this opportunity just kind of fell in my lap and I had to seize mm -hmm. it. Nice. So do you want to get into some of the details of what your research is? Sure. Um, I study a type of childhood cancer. Um, it's a relatively rare cancer still. It's only about 350 new cases a year. Mm -hmm. And it's called rhabdomyosarcoma. So let me break down that word for you. Please. Um, okay. So if you go for the Latin roots of it, it breaks out into four parts. Rhabdo means striated or striped. Myo means muscle, sarc means soft or like tissue, and then oma means cancer. So this means it's a type of cancer that occurs in your striated muscle, which is your skeletal muscle that you can voluntarily move the parts of your body. I see. That was really helpful. Let <laughs> me break it down. So what does the cancer do to the kids? Or where, where do you, once, where, where do you find it? And then so this cancer actually can occur in any part of the body because skeletal mm. muscle, you know, you it's have everywhere. basically from your heads <laughs> to your toes because you can move everything. Mm -hmm. But the most common places that it occurs is like the head and the neck region and then um, in your arms and your legs. Mm. Okay. And it's actually better if you get it in the head and the neck. That tends to have a better prognosis. 
Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? I would that, imagine that it's like yeah, you know, arm better. Um, we don't know 100% why it is that way, but I, part of what I think it is is that it's easy. It's easier to detect mm-hmm. when you're in the head and the neck region. And then it's also got a slightly different origin when it's in the head and the neck. It comes from different types of cells. Interesting. And so um, while it's considered it's all umbrellaed under one type of cancer, there's actually mm-hmm. a couple different types of this cancer. And the one that tends to have a better prognosis, so better chances of surviving the cancer, is the one that occurs in your head and your neck. Hmm. Okay, so what do you do with these cells? Mm -hmm. So what I do with these cells is I study them to see if I can identify a difference between the cancer cells and the healthy cells, so the healthy muscle tissue. And the specific type of cell that we're comparing it to is the stem cells that are in your muscle. Okay. So this is these are the cells that when you injure your muscle, they are able to activate and repair your muscle. Mm-hmm. And so we were specifically looking at this little this type of molecule, this protein that sits on the surface of the cell. It's a receptor. And what that does is it's involved in cell-to-cell contact communication. So it's kind of like the cells come towards each other and give each other a handshake and say, hello, or you need to go to the grocery store and buy this thing, or you need to go somewhere else in the body. And, but in the cancer, instead of being on the surface, those receptor molecules are now on the inside of the cell. And so they can't be making that handshake with other cells. So they have to be doing something totally new now. And what we're trying to do is figure out what it could be doing in the cancer that contributes to either the formation of the cancer or the cancer progressing to worse states. Hmm. So how do you, before we get into more details, how do you even get those cancer cells? Uh, the way that we got the cancer cells that we're using is... Um, so it's, it's from patients, right? Uh, well, we have some samples that are from patients, but we mm-hmm. mainly use mouse cells. Um, so mice and dogs, well, we, let me back up a little bit. We started by collaborating with the vet school on campus. Um, so Mm -hmm. dogs actually get this type of cancer as well. And that's how we got into it is a veterinary, a vet at the vet school saw this type of tumor and he said, well, I know a muscle biologist on campus. And so we had actual sections of tumors from dogs that we were able to look at. Nice. And then, but because those are not alive, we needed to find a way to be able to manipulate cells that were alive. And so what you can do is if you take a biopsy from the type of cancer or the tumor, Mm -hmm. then you can culture that and you can grow single cells. So you basically just have to separate it instead of from the chunk, separate it into its individual parts and grow it in the right type of food. And then you can manipulate them. What is that type of food? Yeah, I was going to say, what is cancer food? (laughs) Well, what cancer food is, um, how to describe it. We don't actually know what it is in particular in the media that the cells Mm. like, but we know that you can get serum Mm -hmm. from different types of animals. So what we use is calf serum. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's basically, it's the same type of serum that we have in your blood. And you can purify the proteins that would be in the blood. And then, because that's how the cancer would get it in the body is it would go through blood vessels and we get to the tumor. So this is basically just a way to get rid of the blood vessels and you can put it in a dish. Hmm. Wow. 
So you just, the, the, the food is just a serum? Yeah. Oh. And then you have to give it just like some. <laughs> and so yeah. I thought it was like more exotic. No. <laughs> well, could it be a more exotic animal, sir? <laughs> you can use more exotic animals, but these ones, it's easier to get it from calves because it's a very common animal that's grown, especially in our region. And Und so. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess this is super specific about <laughs> cancer food, but so plants, do those work as cancer food or is it really, does it have to be? from an animal because this cancer grows in animals? I don't know the answer to that, but I will say that we have never used any serum that comes from plants. Okay. And I have not seen any papers where people use it that come from plants. So I would guess that eventually we could probably find a way to engineer plants to have that mm -hmm. right type of food. But for now we have to use it from animals. That makes sense. Okay, yeah, sorry to indulge my, no, that's okay. <laughs> my crazy question. Well, I was going to say, there's probably not a plant serum, just based on, on the description that Ronnie said about yeah, how the true. serum comes from blood cells and so plants. So plants have a but they, they sort of vascular system. It's okay. not like our, you know, veins and arteries, but mm -hmm. they still have to find a way to transport the food that they make in their leaves down to the roots right. and the water from the soil back up to their leaves. So mm -hmm. they do still have fluid that would carry nutrients up and down similar to how we carry it through our veins mm -hmm. and our arteries. But it's a little bit different, obviously, since I it's plants versus animals. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine. So, okay, so what have you done, like, so that's what you're you're studying. Um, then, then what's what's new? What what have you found? What what are the next steps? So the next steps we found um, based off two other labs in the very end of 2015 have identified basically two of the siblings to the part to the protein I study that are in the hmm. same family. Mm -hmm. They were also not at the surface of cancers anymore. And in this case, it was lung cancer or prostate cancer. And so the cancers were using a similar mechanism to the cancer I study where they were removing this protein from the cell surface and internalizing it, bringing it to the inside. And in one case, in lung cancer, it was making the cells resistant to ionizing radiation, which is mm. a very common treatment for cancers where you sure. shoot mm -hmm. ionizing radiation, you know, into the tumor to try and shrink it. And so what this was doing was it was repairing the damage that that radiation did. Oh, no. And the lab actually was able to develop a treatment that would prevent this translocation, this movement from the surface to the inside of the cell. Mm -hmm. And when they did that, the mice that had the tumors were more sensitized to the ionizing radiation. So they responded to it better. That's great. So that's one way that this could be involved is if it's making it resistant to treatments. Mm -hmm. But in prostate cancer, instead, what it was doing is it was turning on other proteins and making them expressed at higher levels. So there was more of this protein in there that was causing it to have a worse prognosis. So it was making the cancer progress to, to worse states. Mm. And so we're going to try and just follow the two avenues that these two labs took to see if this will give us clues as to what it's doing and the type of cancer I'm studying. So I have a question about your day-to-day -day research. Mm -hmm. What what does it look like? What kind of instruments do you use? I mean, are there special protections you have to, um, or precautions you have to take to deal with cancer cells? There are some. Um, I'm going to address one that I have been asked before is a lot of people ask me if I can get cancer from working with cancer cells. Yes. I cannot. Cool. Oh, good. <laughs> um, and so in order for that to happen, I would have to 
have my immune system depressed mm. and I would have to inject myself with millions of cells. And so I'm not working with needles. And so first of all, I couldn't inject myself. Um, but I also am not in a state of a depressed immune system. And so I have absolutely no worries about <laughs> giving myself cancer from working with cancer cells. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, as far as my day-to-day -day goes, I'm using microscopes. Mm -hmm. And the way that we found out that the protein was in the wrong place was a technique called immunofluorescence. And so what this is, is a way basically to paint the proteins I'm looking at and make them glow in the dark. So you put an antibody in, which is basically like a detection system. And so it's kind of like that game that babies play where you have to put the block in the right shape. Sure. And so this antibody is the block that has to find the right shape. Oh, I And gotcha. so it finds my protein. And then when I put it under the microscope, it lights it up so I can see where it's located. And so that's the most common technique that we use in lab is basically painting the cells. And it's very pretty. You can make them all kinds of colors. <laughs> and it's um, a very visual technique so that other people can also see it. Mm -hmm. But we also do techniques such as Western blotting, mm -hmm. which is basically a way where you isolate the proteins out of the cells and you separate them based off how much they weigh. Okay. And, and what information do you get out of that? What's what we learned from that is how big the protein is. And so you can find out if it's the full length, like mm -hmm. it's supposed to be the full protein, or maybe if the cell is cutting off part of it and only using part of it for the cancer. Mm -hmm. And you can also use it to find out which particular compartment in the cell the protein is at. Okay. Wait, what? The <laughs> last part, what? Yeah, so... You can, you can find where the particular compartment you, of the cell, the protein is at? You can. And the way that I would compare this is to... Like so like you, can, you can tell where whether it's like in the cytoplasm or... You know, can. Mitochondria it, mm -hmm. or... It takes some special techniques, but basically what you do is you take your cells and you spin them at really fast, but at different speeds. Mm -hmm. And each little different compartment in the cell will go to the bottom of your tube at a different speed. Oh. And so it's kind of, yeah. And so you can spin <laughs> down the sense. nucleus and you can isolate the nucleus. You can mm -hmm. spin down the mitochondria, isolate those. If there's chloroplasts involved in plants, you mm -hmm. can spin down the chloroplast. You can isolate the membrane so you can see what's on the surface of the cell. Hmm. And then when you run the Western blood, then you can see when, I, when you injected this thingy, then... <laughs> Whether or not it appears, then you can tell, oh, this protein was in this Yeah, you area can tell part what particular area the cell it's in. Oh. See, that's why chemists, when they do like lab work like me mm -hmm. in with DNA, we just use the same speed. Because <laughs> we're only dealing with one, one thing. thing. Yeah. In yeah, this case, it's DNA, so. And, and like when I work with different size proteins. But do you work with cells? Well, no, but if I were going to use like different size things, mm -hmm. I wouldn't use a spinning technique to do that. But that totally makes sense that mm -hmm. everything has its own weight yeah. within a cell. So, yeah. Science. 
In physics come into place. <laughs> it's amazing the tricks that people have been able to come up with yeah. to answer these questions. And I'm pretty sure there's a physics equa or a math equation hiding behind it. Sure. Oh, there definitely is, but I definitely do not understand <laughs> those, so I just go by the instructions of how fast to spin it. <laughs> well, that's where all the different sciences work together. Yes. Yep. Yeah, they do. Uh, okay, we're going to go on a short musical break, and we'll be back uh, with more research from Ronnie. You're listening to The Big Electron on KCOU 88.1 FM. All right, welcome back to The Big Electron. <laughs> you don't, you're not on. I'm not on. I really like that song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so we're, we're talking to Ronnie about uh, her research on, on this specific type of cancer and how she looks at cancer cells. Um, and Anahita, you had a question. Actually, I have a question before I get to that question. <laughs> um, so I just realized you said that this affects children. Mm -hmm. Is there a certain age group that we see this cancer in more? Is there a certain gender, a certain region? Uh, so it's not really different between genders, actually. It's slightly more prominent in boys, but not significantly. Okay. Um, but this occurs mostly um, before 18 years of age. Okay. So the cancer that I was talking about that's more common in the head and the neck and tends to be a little bit better and more curable, um, that occurs generally between the ages of one and nine. Mm -hmm. And so if you get diagnosed with this type of cancer between those ages, your prognosis tends to be a little bit better. Um, okay. If you are under one or if you are over nine years old, then your prognosis tends to be a little bit worse. I see. And this does occur in adults sometimes, but not very often. So it's mostly children? Yeah. And very childish adults. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I, yeah, that wasn't funny. <laughs> okay, so um, what kind of experiments do you do to get more information about these cancer cells? Well, besides the staining techniques and the Western blot techniques yes. that I already had described to you, what we're doing right now is a technique that is generally known as CHIP-seq. And what that stands for is chromatin immunoprecipitation sequencing. So what chromatin is, is your DNA that's bound with proteins. So it's how it packages up into the smaller sections instead of being strung out everywhere. Okay, so, and when you say bound, it's like glued to the protein pretty much. It's a dynamic situation in okay. cells because things are changing all the time and your proteins need to access different parts of your genetic code. Mm -hmm. And so it changes. But what we do to make sure that the protein is stuck where it is in the moment mm -hmm. is you can fix the cells with something called formaldehyde. Okay. And it basically glues everything where it's at. It's called cross-linking. So there's some type of bond that's formed between the proteins and the DNA, <laughs> and they stick together, and you can't pull them apart. We've, that sounds familiar. I was going to say, we've definitely heard of cross-linking before on <laughs> yeah. this podcast or radio show. <laughs> and so after that, It's once, the kind of research that I do. Not yeah. about formaldehyde, <laughs> but... <laughs> but, yeah, and it's... Uh, the one that I do is DNA, DNA, cross-link, um... So you're talking Whereas, about And this doesn't DNA discriminate protein. when you fix it. Like everything right. just sticks together. It's yeah. basically like you're taking a snapshot of the oh, cell okay. where it's at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's sidetrack. Um, they, you don't, as Ronnie's saying, you don't even know where it is. Like if you want it to be sequence specific, we don't know. No, we, we, yeah. we don't know. We just know it happens. And we just know it, it happens between the protein and the DNA or between the two strands of DNA. Um, and interestingly enough, our group is is starting in that path to try to recognize where 
where those crossings happen specifically. Where, well, maybe where, we're going to have to collaborate at some where point. Where sequence, sequence specific <laughs> happens, yeah. Uh, we're on the early stages, um, but yeah, it's, it, it's very interesting because it's a technique that is commonly used in biology uh, because whenever I talk to biologists and I tell them, oh, I'm doing crosslinks and everyone is like, oh, you're using formaldehyde? I'm like, no, there's other types of crosslinks. Um, but it's a, it's a technique that is so commonly used, but still we don't know much about specifically what it's doing mm -hmm. other than it's gluing two things yeah, together. Yeah, that's basically all we want to use it for is so that our protein doesn't just fall off the DNA when we're manipulating it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyhow. <laughs> well, so you say that it crosslinks are, you know, it takes a snapshot. Mm -hmm. And then you want to analyze that snapshot. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the way that you would analyze that Snapchat, that comes into the immunoprecipitation part of chromatin snapshot. immunoprecipitation. Right. What? Snapshot. Snapshot. Uh -huh. It's taking a snapshot. Yeah. You said we... Snapchat. Oh, did I? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. I definitely did not catch that one. Uh, so, okay. So you're taking a snapshot. <laughs> And then we're doing an immunoprecipitation from it, which mm -hmm. is basically pulling out the information that you want. So we have yep. an antibody, which is what I use in the immunofluorescence as well, that was the block finding the right hole in the kids game. So this antibody binds to the protein that I want to use, and then you can basically use a magnet and it pulls it out so that I can specifically look at the section that I want instead of everything mm -hmm. that's in the cell. So... So how does it do that? How does it pull out? The way that this works is once you have your protein that's bound to the DNA, okay. you s put the antibody in the mix, which is able to specifically locate the protein I'm looking at. Okay. And then with that on there, you actually, so the beads that we use actually are magnetic and I literally do use a magnet to pull these out. <laughs> that's so cool. But the way it works is once the antibody is bound to the protein, mm -hmm. The beads are engineered. They're made so that the antibody sticks to the beads. Okay. So you have an antibody that, so you have DNA and protein stuck together. Stuck together. Mm -hmm. And then you have on an one side. On one side. And then you have an antibody that binds to the protein. Mm -hmm. And then you have beads that bind to the antibody. Yep. And then you have a magnet and you just that pulls can... out the beads uh -huh. so that it's pulling out my protein DNA complexes. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. And then once you have those pulled nice. out. <laughs> yeah. That's where the sequencing part comes in. And okay. so you can actually find out what parts of your DNA mm -hmm. this protein would be binding to by sequencing it so that we can find out the specific letter code that's there. Okay. And then so once you have this coding information, then you can get a deeper understanding about what causes this cancer to form? Well, we would get a deeper understanding of how my protein of interest is involved in the cancer. I see. And so this would tell me if my protein is binding to DNA that would make the cancer go to different parts of the body called metastasis. Mm -hmm. um, it could tell us if that's what's telling the cancer cells to divide or not and to replicate. Mm -hmm. And it could also tell us if maybe that's what's causing the cancer to develop some type of drug resistance. Okay. So it's basically trying to figure out the function of the protein in the cancer. And I, I know you said this earlier, but just remind me, is it a specific protein or just different proteins over time? I am looking at a specific protein, okay. um, but there are, it has 18 other brothers and sisters essentially that are involved in other types of cancer as well. And so that's giving us a framework to work off of. Okay. So we're not shooting just totally in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, so are those other proteins 
have they already been studied or is that maybe the future of this project? That's the future of this project for this particular protein. I see. Um, I talked about the other two brothers and sisters that has that are involved in lung cancer and prostate cancer. Yes. Um, and those are the only other two that we know about that have, that are in the wrong place in the cell. Mm -hmm. We know a lot about how it's involved in cancers when it's on the surface of the cell. So this is a little bit of a new, it's a new area for these particular proteins. That's Which so is really exciting. exciting. Yeah. yeah. Whatever I find will be something <laughs> new and can be added to the scientific knowledge. That's awesome. Which is cool. how I was yeah. able to be drawn to the project <laughs> because nobody in lab had worked on it before. And so it's really daunting to build a project from the ground up mm -hmm. when you're a brand new graduate student and you oh, don't yeah. actually know right. how to do science. Well, you know how to do science when you first start, but... It takes a little bit of time figuring out. Yeah, learning how, how to do to science get. efficiently. Uh -huh. There you <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and on your own without yes. like an instruction manual. Without having somebody to tell me every single step yeah. I'm supposed to take. So um, do you think that your history and art has helped you with your science career? I think that my history with art has given me something to draw on when I'm talking to people about science um, because... It helps me with seeing what I can compare my research to for metaphors or mm -hmm. especially if I'm doing like PowerPoint presentations or poster presentations. Yeah. I, it helps me so that my stuff doesn't look boring because mm -hmm. if it looks boring, sometimes it's hard to tell people that it's not boring. Yeah. So if it looks exciting, maybe people are more likely to listen. I gotcha. Cool. So before, um, I guess our last question that we generally like to ask, and we have a co it's combined <laughs> questions. Yeah. So if, if there was, um, I guess you can ask that question and I'll ask the last one. Okay, <laughs> if there was, okay, so imagine that all science knowledge was wiped off of the earth and okay. there was one thing that you would wish could be carried on. From your oh, research. From your research so that people could do your research again whether that's, you know, some kind of microscope or an understanding of some thing about science, like proteins fold, mm -hmm. you know, it could be anything. Is there, I know. So I actually think it would maybe be a little more basic than even those. It would just be the technique of cell culture, because if you can't grow the cells, you can't do any research on that's them. That's a really good answer. <laughs> yeah. That totally I know that's makes not sense. very exciting, but. No, but that's a good one. Um, there was that was a question that was asked to a lot of scientists. I think it was about two years ago, and they were considered the top scientists in the world. And they had some crazy answers like, um, "You can purify water, like kill bacteria in water using the sun." Was one of the answers. And the person who That's gave that answer, I think they were a physicist. Like, oh, okay. It had nothing to do with their field. They were just like, "This is what people need to know." Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, and then the other question that we like to ask is, uh, what sort of advice advice do you have for people who are, whether they're kids, uh, college students, or a little bit older, uh, what advice do you have for them if they have any interest in science? Keep asking questions. Um, you know, if you see something that's interesting, follow up on it. And if you can't find the answer yourself, ask somebody to help you because you may not have all the answers and you may not have the knowledge to go for it, but if you can find somebody who does, you can work together to get there. And I think that we will go farther mm -hmm. if we learn to collaborate more. Sounds good. 
Alrighty, we're gonna go on a short break and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the Big Electron here on KCU Columbia. There we go. Okay, hello. KCU Columbia, eighty-eight point one FM. Yeah. <laughs> I've Yay. never been able to say <laughs> what we're supposed to say. For those of you that are listening on our podcast, thank you for subscribing. Um, please rate us highly. <laughs> <laughs> So with us today, again, we have a graduate student in biological sciences, Ronnie, um, and we're going to talk about some interesting science news. Science news, yeah. Yeah, well, we're going to switch gears for the last few minutes here, um, and we'll talk about some cool science news. So, um, so yeah, Ronnie, you found something cool. Yeah, um, a paper came out just in this past week um, about... Neanderthal diets and hmm. they said that there are actually some vegetarian Neanderthals and Neanderthals were self-medicating with plants in the area. That hmm. part is the kind of cool part. <laughs> okay. But yeah, so vegetarian How? Neanderthals? Yeah, it depends on the region is what they found as they looked hmm. at Neanderthals in Spain and in Italy, and they found that depending on where the Neanderthals lived, they changed their diets. So they were just using whatever was around, basically. I was going to say, is it because food, like meat, wasn't around? But that makes <laughs> sense. Maybe it's just really, I mean, Spain is a really lush, you know, a lot of things grow in Spain soil, Spanish soil. Yeah. But... <laughs> The question that I have is, how do they even know that they were eating this stuff or not stuff? It's an interesting little trick that they found to do this. And it's something that they could do on us now when we all go to the dentist to get this taken care of. Is they looked at the plaque on the Neanderthal teeth that they found. Oh, oh, that's gross. What? Huh? It lasts that long? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. And that's why we should brush our teeth, right? <laughs> um what they did is they took the plaque that they were able to find on the Neanderthal jaw fossils that still had teeth mm -hmm. and they could sequence it. Like I was talking about with my research where you could find mm -hmm. out what DNA was in it. And when they were able to find those sequences, they found what types of things the DNA came from. So whether it, what types of plants it came from or if it came from certain types of animals. Oh, okay. So because we know we know the DNA of the Neanderthals, and then they, you and can then identify they can the other ones. Mm -hmm. Okay, so is that also how we found out about the self-medicating? Then it is. Okay. They found a Neanderthal that had had some health problems. It had a dental abscess, which is a tooth infection, and it also oh. they had evidence of it having an intestinal parasite. So there was obviously some problems going on with this Neanderthal. <laughs> and when they sequenced his dental plaque, there was evidence of poplar, which is a tree that contains salicylic acid, which is oh. aspirin's active ingredient. Yeah. So I guess in, I mean, there were no tools as, or, you know, scientific techniques that we would use to identify different chemicals so i assume the neanderthals just did this by testing it out and oh this makes me feel better so I'll yeah and i'm sure that yeah. there was a couple that figured out that this makes me feel better and then passed that knowledge just down where maybe when they had their kids and one was complaining of a toothache maybe it's mom or dad said hey you should chew on this leaf chew and eat it and it'll thing. make you yeah. feel better oh that's awesome that's really Pretty cool. cool yeah yeah who knew how much you could learn about somebody from looking at their dental plaque 
Yeah. I mean, this poor Neanderthal was sick. (laughs) (laughs) And we took his plaque and found out all Um, about him. I'm pretty sure he was not the, he or she was not the only one. No. That's true. Like, yeah, I think we've come pretty far in, in, in treating diseases and infections and, and other stuff. But but yeah, our teeth and our bones are um, they they have great uh, reminders, remainders of, mm-hmm. of us, uh, even when, you know, we don't have we don't think we have DNA available. So, um, so- going I was going to say, so plaque is so bad. It'll survive <laughs> 50,000 years after you. <laughs> and they will figure out. Just think about that. <laughs> if you were eating a gummy bear or... Or if you're deciding not to floss, uh-huh. you just remember that. Just remember that. <laughs> Archaeologists in the future will know if you flossed your teeth. <laughs> it's kind of fun. So going going from all the way there, I'm going to... Fast forward us to all the way to the future. And um, so whenever whenever you're at the airport, you know, and you're scrambling, your phone is about to die because you've been out of town. And for some reason, whenever you're out of town, the battery drains faster. And <laughs> I don't know what is it. But uh, so your battery drains super fast and you're at the airport or somewhere and and you're trying to find an outlet that is available unfortunately there's like 50 other people also trying to find an outlet that is available wouldn't it be cool that if you just walked into a room you your phone or your ipad or tablet whatever electronic device that you have could charge automatically Without being connected? Without being connected. You just walk in and then it's like wirelessly charging. I don't think I'd leave that room. (laughs) (laughs) I have a, I am notorious for living in the yellow zone of my iPhone's battery. So I'm always 20% (laughs) battery life or less. (laughs) Okay. I would just never leave that room. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now imagine, and I know you are a super fan of of, of, of the following mm-hmm. now imagine if that room is created by disney well i found my new home <laughs> <laughs> so so disney as as many of you probably know disney has has a research uh, branch um and disney scientist uh basically designed a room an entire room that turns into a wireless charger and this is done uh, by uh, Disney Research. Uh, it's it's a branch of the Walt Disney Company. Um, and basically what they did is um, it can charge up to 10 objects at one time. Or, or Whoa. get the batteries up, up to uh, 10 objects in one time if you just walk in. So this could be like if your laptop charges wirelessly, you could be charging that too. Or your phone, tablet, whatever. Um, and basically what they did is they... They were inspired by Nikola Tesla, um, because why not, right? <laughs> and uh, Tesla <laughs> believed that he could create a, a global network of wireless electricity uh, that would use electromagnetic waves um, that would come that would go between the ionosphere, um, which is the layer uh, of Earth's atmosphere that is filled with ions and free electrons, and the ground. So the the, the two wa- the electromagnetic waves would go from the ground 
to the ionosphere and then come back and then you would create So this sphere would be like theoretically on the ceiling. So it would be the whole room. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, in Tesla's mind, it was it was in the earth. So oh, we I could see. create electricity free for everyone. Um, now, of course, that was not... Um, that's not possible, but inspired by, by that same idea, uh, researchers at Disney Research um, set up something that could that could do the same thing. And so what they have is they created this room uh, where they have a pole in, in the center that is uh, that is covered in copper. And then the walls of the room are aluminum paneled walls. And so oh. what they do um, in the pole, they have uh, 15 capacitors um, that store electrical energy. And so as the capacitors start to generate the electrical currents, they would travel up to the ceiling, through the ceiling and the walls and the floor and then back through the pole. And they would create this uh, circular mo motion. Mm -hmm. And this is happening all around the room. So while you're creating these electrical currents, um, they create electromagnetic fields that circulate around the pole and they can wirelessly charge the devices in the room. That's awesome. Isn't that great? Yeah. So which <laughs> rides have this installed? <laughs> <laughs> wait so long sometimes it'd be nice to get a charge while you're waiting and, and here's the best one of the best parts they just say that furniture and other object decorated objects do not have issues with it like oh, cool. they, they don't interfere with with the magnet with the with the waves uh the electromagnetic waves and, and the creation of, of electricity um they also said that it's okay for uh since that, since the magnetic fields that they are creating, they're not that strong. Uh, they're also safe for humans to be in the space. Awesome. Um, so, uh, actually, while they were doing this uh, simulations, they they met the federal safety regulations, um, and while still making enough power that would be enough to charge, like I said, your phones, laptops. Uh, they said all their other small electronic devices. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. Um, since you brought up Disney research, I was kind of interested in what else they have done uh -huh. because I know what I would assume it was and it's, that's exactly what they do. So uh, Disney in the past year has published papers on. Um, oh yeah. And this research was published oh. in uh, the public library of science mm -hmm. one uh, plus research. Uh, it's open data. So if you are sitting at home and you just want to find this out, um, you can read the entire article about it. It's called, the paper's called Quasi-Static Cavity Resonance for Ubiquitous Wireless Power Transfer. <laughs> or you can Google Disney Research. <laughs> yeah. And PLOS One, mm -hmm. P-L-O-S-O-N-E, and you'll find it. <laughs> but yeah, so some of the other things that um, Disney's done, a lot of it has to do with games or spatial recognition. So things I would mm -hmm. you would expect for people who design rides. So some of it is... Um, being able to monitor how groups interact with one another using sensing equipment. So that would be, I could see a lot of applications for that, but like imagine mm -hmm. if there was a ride where like I might be in my car and Jackie, you're in another car and Ronnie, you're in a third car and whatever I do in my car 
that like links with what you guys do. And then we can, in our own separate vehicles, interact with one another. Oh, so it, uh, it could have, um, applications in that. And then also they recently published a paper on the restoration of historical film, which totally makes sense for Disney. Uh (laughs) And, um, which side note, did you guys know that a lot of the Hollywood films, like the old films are stored in the salt museum, uh, somewhere in Kansas, in the middle of Kansas? I had no idea. Oh, because the salt dry. Because the salt is so dry and it's cool. Like they don't have to have any, anything. They don't have a heating system or a cooling system or anything. And it's just, it is dry. So it, it preserves the films. So that's where you should go for an epic movie night. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, and then but I was yeah, back say, to Disney research. The last research one that um, I stumbled across is one that kind of surprised me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Disney research published uh, in November of last year model based teeth reconstruction. So I don't know where they're going with that, but I'm interested. <laughs> Model-based teeth reconstruction? Yes. So, well, I'm, I'm assuming so there's being, a lot of accidents. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if if I understand from the abstract what they're doing, um, it's being able to figure out the model of what teeth should look like based uh. on models. So I, I can see it as kind of doing like a face capture thing and then like using face capture to build stuff. Like maybe make more pix- realistic model, like their their animatronics. Say, yeah, their animatronics, or even in their movies, like Pixar yeah. might use face rendering to like make fake teeth in their, mm-hmm. you know, in their movie. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, when you when you're creating, like, I just thought of Monster Sync. Like, all exactly. of the different characters have different teeth, and you know, and then if- I guess all all of the the animation movies have different. Yeah, the characters have teeth. Right. So if you just like take a picture of somebody, uh-huh. you can make your Pixar teeth. Mm-hmm. But then like if you have a model of what teeth should look like and you need teeth, you can use this Disney research paper to get there. Mm-hmm. So it has beyond just Disney applications, which is cool. Yeah. Maybe you could use it to start reconstructing Neanderthal teeth when you <laughs> find the fossils. We're Whitewater Ramble. You're listening to 88.1 KCOU Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and do some, I guess you would imagine afterwards, after this, it's a little bit better. Um, if someone is in a car accident and they need to reconstruct their teeth, sure. um, you know. Here's the system to do that. Here's the system. And you would have teeth that are similar to what you had before. Right. Um, so. Yeah, that's I know where cool. I want to go find a job now. <laughs> yeah, so interestingly enough, I didn't know this. Disney Research, one of their campuses, is in Pittsburgh. I just assume everything Disney's in Florida or LA, but <laughs> <laughs> apparently not. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. Alrighty, well, Ronnie, thanks so much for being here on the show today. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for listening. Again, you are now listening to an award-winning show. Yay! Um, so thanks for listening. And if 